You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. Joshua chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Please follow along with me. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise, from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon, with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of the Amorites, who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aor, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, in the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites that is half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinnereth eastward, and in the direction of Beth, Jejamuth, to the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Rephaim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Idri, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Selica, and all Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, the king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of the Lord, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 7. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal-Gad in the valley of Lebanon, to Mount Halak that rises towards Seir, And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession, according to their allotments, in the hill country, in the low land, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, the king of Jericho, one, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, one, king of Jerusalem, one. The king of Hebron, one. The king of Jarmuth, one. The king of Lachish, one. The king of Eglon, one. The king of Gezer, one. The king of Deber, one. The king of Geder, one. The king of Hormah, one. The king of Arad, one. The king of Libna, one. The king of Adullam, one. The king of Makeda, one. The king of Bethel, one. The king of Tapua, one. The king of Hefer, one. The king of Aphek, one. The king of Lasharon, one. The king of Madan, one. The king of Hazor, one. The king of Shimron Meron, one. The king of Ashaph, one. The king of Tanakh, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kadesh, one, the king of Jokneam in Carmel, one, the king of Dor in Naphath Dor, one, the king of Goim in Galilee, one, the king of Terzah, one, in all, 31 kings. The word of the Lord to us today, I want to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for this. Uh, we do thank you for this text, this passage that 
at first glance, at the hearing of the reading of it, I think most of us would easily check out, probably skip through this passage and move on to something that feels a little bit more connectable, a little bit more applicable. And yet, Father, we know that every word of your word is useful and profitable for our growth and for your honor. And so, Father, we ask that you would come now and help me as I preach this passage. And I pray, Father, that what comes out of my mouth and what comes out of my heart would be honoring to you, helpful to your people. I pray, God, that you would use it to turn our eyes and our attention to the cross of Christ, the power of the empty tomb, and the promise of eternity in heaven with you. I trust you to do that work. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. So it's an interesting chapter that we just read. As I uh, kind of mentioned in my prayer, not one that we would probably normally turn to for lots of edification. Um, but the reality about Joshua chapter 12, I hope that you'll find it maybe as fascinating um, as I do uh, once we move through this. Uh, the reality about Joshua chapter 12 is it's basically a transitional chapter. Okay? That's probably the way to read it. It's a transitional chapter in the book that basically helps you to move from um, one part of the narrative to the next part of the narrative. I mean, you're, it's a whole story, but you're moving from one part of the story to the next part of the story. So uh, you might view it uh, like a bridge. Um, so it's kind of like a bridge uh, that connects one body of land to another uh, body of land. So what I want you guys to do along with me is kind of envision uh, yourself standing on a bridge, okay? And you're, there's one area of land uh, behind you, and there's an uh, area of land in front of you. You're standing in the middle of that bridge, and you've got an eye um, towards what's ahead of you, but you've also got an eye on what's behind you. We're, gonna, we're basically going to spend some time on that bridge. That's what Joshua chapter 12 is. I'm going to lovingly refer to it as the Joshua chapter 12 bridge to hopefully drive home the experience of how we study this. So with that in mind, as you're looking back, the first thing I want you to do is to look back over your shoulder. And I want you to notice what you would notice would be the first 11 chapters of Joshua, okay? So if you've studied the book of Joshua or if you've been with us and heard sermons from the book of Joshua in our series so far, you're going to look back, you're going to notice that in those 11 chapters of Joshua, those chapters are full of conquest, right? Uh, they're fast-paced, they're action-packed, they're full of victory, they're full of miraculous divine intervention on behalf of God's people as they are entering into the hostile territory of the promised land. So as you look back from this bridge, that's what you see in the first 11 chapters. Now if you turn around on the bridge and vision yourself turning around, you're going to look forward to the rest of the book of Joshua, chapters 13 to 24, basically where we're going to be headed in the weeks to come. Uh, from your vantage point on the bridge, what you're going to see in those next chapters, 13 to 24, is a massive shift in the plot line. Okay? Whereas the first 11 chapters of the book are full of action-packed sequences, the last half of the book is going to kind of feel at times like a, okay? Um, and yet there's significance um, in all of this. Um, 
The rest of the book is not going to center on fighting, not going to center on conquest, not going to center on the action-packed victory and the win. Uh, It's going to center on the distribution of the promised inheritance of the land to the right groups of people. So I I will warn you ahead of time, some of the chapters we're going to study in the weeks ahead are going to be a little bit laborious in terms of just reading. And Joshua gave this land to this group, and then he gave this land to this group, and then he gave this land. And we're going to to read through it all um, just to help us continue to live in the discipline of loving every word of God's word. But that said, what lies behind this action pact, what lies ahead of us is basically um, the appropriation of the inheritance. <coughs> one, um, one last thought on the inheritance is you might think about reading that and studying that with this thought in mind. If you knew that someone in your family uh, might be dying soon or maybe they just died and you know that they have millions and millions of dollars and they're going to give you that inheritance check. That might be the kind of anticipation to read the rest of this book with uh, because it's really going to center on that kind of a theme and what it means to look forward to the inheritance that we have in Christ. So uh, crumple that up, put that aside. Don't want to spend a lot of time there. (coughs) Right, now, with all of that in mind, uh, if uh, if you turn back around on the bridge, okay, you're back on this Joshua 12 bridge, you take a look backwards. Um, what do you see when you think about it? Uh, what you see in the past is you see a whole bunch of past wins, right? That's what the author of Joshua in chapter 12 outlines, is a whole bunch of past wins. Now, I would submit that I think that we kind of like to do this too, uh, especially in regards to our favorite sports teams. Um, maybe it's the Huskers. Um, Maybe lately it's an NFL team as they go into the playoff season, or maybe it's a basketball team as basketball season is in place. We like to do this, though, after our favorite uh, sporting season is over, right? Um, We have a tendency to look back at the season. We mourn the losses. We uh, celebrate the wins. And then we also begin to kind of dream about what the next season is going to look like. So I think that's kind of what's taking place in this Joshua 12 bridge, and in this case, (coughs) Joshua is actually outlining two past seasons. So keep that in mind. you got two past seasons. This will be illustrated on the screen in front of you. you got two past seasons that the author is pointing to, two very different leaders as well. Uh, So uh, this would be similar to us making uh, comparisons between two very different coaches, during two very different seasons, okay? So you can kind of put that context on as you're standing on the bridge, thinking about two past seasons under two very different coaches. So the first season uh, in chapter 12 is, uh, is outlined in verses 1 through 6, and then the other uh, season is outlined in verses 7 through 24. So season number 1 in verses uh, 1 through 6, that's the season under Moses' leadership. And it points back to Deuteronomy chapters 2 and 3. not going to spend a lot of time there, but I want you to know, verses 1 through 6 are a summary of what actually happens in Deuteronomy 2 and 3. So you want some interesting reading? Go back and read Deuteronomy 2 and 3 in your free time. In those two chapters, this summary of verses 1 through 6, it's a summary of the two kings that Moses put a hurt on. Okay? So keep that in mind. 
Moses and Israel annihilated two kings in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, and that's what the author of Joshua in verses 1 through 6, chapter 12, is referring to. The second season is outlined in verses 7 through 24, okay? And this is Joshua. Uh, this is basically a summary of chapters 1 through 11 of Joshua. Uh, if you were to do an analytical study, uh, cross-reference back and forth, you're going to find that there's some kings and some areas that are listed that you're actually not going to find written in the first 11 chapters. Uh, but historically, and as well as, as, as authors and scholars that write on this, uh, would just simply say, basically, this is like adding more to the story that just wasn't listed. doesn't make it not true. It just adds more to the story and completes the list of the people that Joshua and his team beat. So in summary, I want to summarize this, I want to drive this home. You got Moses, who according to verse 6, is the servant of the Lord. And we could spend a lot of time there discussing what a servant of the Lord means. And I'll just give you this. Basically, it's the same word that you see in the New Testament Scriptures where it says that you're a bondservant. Uh, so a slave, you're connected to, you do anything your master asks you to, and the reason that you would do so is because your master has promised good to you. Um, it's not the same kind of master-slave relationship that we might think of in maybe our American history or even in, in, in other nations and throughout the, the history of the world. This is, a, uh, this is a commitment between a master, God, who has promised to provide everything for us and to care for us. Therefore, we would want to and desire to serve him. That's my little synopsis of this servant of the Lord in regards to Moses. So you have Moses, the servant of the Lord. He leads what I like to call the east side team. The reason it's the east side team is because it's on the east side of the Jordan River. Okay, So it kind of gives you some context to think about. He led the east side team. Uh, on the uh, east side of the river, and he led them with two wins, okay? So two wins, and then Joshua in this summary leads the west side team after they cross over the Jordan River, leads the west side team on the west side of the Jordan River in how many wins, people? 29, right? Because there's 31 total, if my math is correct. Moses gets two, Joshua gets 29, okay? So that's basically what we see happening in this passage. And the point of the summary, in, in my understanding, my mind, this is the way I would summarize it. You might summarize a little bit differently, but listen to this. I think the point of what's happening in chapter 12 is just to simply alert us and to let us know that God's people in chapter 12, they're standing on this bridge and they're pressing pause. Pause. They're just simply pressing pause in the midst of the story. And what they're doing is they're celebrating past wins. They're celebrating past wins before they receive their inheritance. Now, that's all really great information. It's really awesome that we know this, right? Um, the question becomes, why is this important? This has got to be the question that we ask when we read the Bible, okay? Um, oftentimes we like to ask the wrong question, which is like, what does that say to me? Well, here's the thing. The Bible wasn't written to be about you. The Bible was written to be about Jesus from the get-go. And so when we read the Bible, we have to be asking, what's the significance of this, and how does it point to Jesus? And so uh, many uh, different uh, authors, I think Spurgeon would be one who would say something like, hey, I want to start with the text in front of me, and then I want to, I want to get my understanding, I'm going to get my mind wrapped around and kind of understand what's going on, Author, place, people, things. What's 
What's happening? What's the major themes? I want to do that, and then I want to make a beeline straight for the cross of Jesus. So we're going to try to do that this morning, and the way that I want to do that is just by simply asking, why does this information, why does this passage matter to us? Is it just merely interesting information? I mean, now you can go tell somebody there's a bridge here, and there's a couple of teams, and Moses got less wins than Joshua. Look at me, toot my own horn, because I've got lots of head information, right? Um, is it just that? If it's that, I would, again, I would submit that we're probably in the wrong place. Why are they celebrating the wins? What do we learn from it? First thing I want you to notice, I think, is that celebrating a past win helps you to see the rhythms of your faith. Let me say that one more time. Celebrating a past win helps you to see the rhythms of your faith. Just think about the rhythms of your faith for a minute. And I don't know about you, but um, I've noticed that my faith is not always consistent. Uh, sometimes I feel very triumphant in my faith. Uh, at other times, I feel absolutely defeated in my faith. Uh, sometimes my uh, faith needs to be re-energized, right? Like it just feels worn out. Battery is running low. Other times it feels like my faith is in danger. Sometimes my faith uh, feels very victorious. These are different rhythms of our faith. Triumphant faith. Defeated faith. Re-energized faith. Endangered faith. Victorious faith. These are the different rhythms of our faith. Can you see those rhythms in your life as you look back over the last week or as you look back over the last year of your life? Which faith rhythm are you in right now? Listen to these words again. Triumphant. Defeated. Re-energized. Endangered. Victorious. There's a scholar who uh, actually wrote these faith rhythms out in accordance to the book of Joshua, and he assigns them this way. He says that the battle of Jericho in chapter 6, that is where you see faith triumphant. Right? Uh, he says that Achan's sin in chapter 7, this is where you see faith disabled. When you see the destruction of Ai in chapter 8, this is where you see faith re-empowered. Or when you see the Gideonite deception in uh, chapter 9, this is where you see faith endangered. When you look at the southern and northern conquest of chapters 10 and 11, this is where you see that faith is victorious. But don't those uh, faith rhythms sound familiar to you? Triumphant, defeated, re-energized, endangered, victorious. Maybe you've experienced the walls of some sinful habit in your life crumbling to the ground. And in that moment, you know that your faith is triumphant. And then sadly, a week later, you wake up after a long night of giving in to that very same sin again, and you feel like your faith is what? Completely disabled, right? You make some headway in your marriage, or you make some headway in some friendship that you have. You feel like your faith has been re-empowered. 
And then you turn around the next day and someone rips the fig leaves off of their deception. Or uh, you find out that you've been walking in deception somehow. And uh, in that moment, you feel like your faith is in danger. Maybe then out of left field, uh, maybe your relationship with your kid or a relationship with a coworker or a friend maybe breaks into a whole new level of health and your faith in that moment feels completely victorious, right? What do you call this? You call this a faith rhythm roller coaster ride, right? It's a faith rhythm roller coaster ride. I don't know that many of us could say, you know, my faith always feels victorious, uh, or that my faith always feels strong, right? It's just like I said, I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like my faith is so stinking inconsistent. The truth be told, if you look back at your life, and even if you look back at the last year, you'll probably see some memories from this last year or from your life that honestly probably don't feel like wins at all, right? Um, it's a question, though. Could it be that even in those stories, as you look back over the last week or over the last year or over your life, could it be that even in, even in your failures, even in the losing seasons, that even in those moments that there's still wins to celebrate, right? Uh, could it be true that even when the glass appears to be half empty because of some setback or losing season, that the, the glass is also half full? In other words, isn't it true that even in our deepest moments of pain and failure, that there is still a sovereign God who loves us deeply and He is using those failures and those losses for our good and His glory. Isn't that true? See, if you surveyed the cross of Christ in this moment as you think about this, wouldn't you be tempted to see and to think that that day was a day of loss? If all you had were the details of that one single day, if that's all you had, the, the, the hero of the story dies. Horribly. And he's alone. And yet, we know that the apparent defeat at the cross of Christ was actually a stunning, upset victory that that rattled the hallways of eternity for all who would believe in Christ as their Savior. See, uh, celebrating the past wins and even seeing the wins in the midst of the losing seasons helps you to see the rhythms of your faith. The second thing I think about when I think about celebrating past wins from this passage is that celebrating past wins helps you to rest in God's faithfulness. Celebrating past wins helps you to rest in God's faithfulness. One author um, that I was reading reminded me of this. Reminded me that throughout the first 11 chapters of this book, you think about Israel. Israel does not have fortified cities. Israel does not have large armies in comparison with its enemies. Israel does not have heavy artillery. The author of this commentary says that specifically, quote, Israel has neither horses nor chariots. But what Israel does have 
that its enemies do not have is Yahweh. Well, what more could we want than the presence of Yahweh? Oh, the reality is it's true that oftentimes we want the comforts of this world. We want large armies to protect us. We want fortified walls for security. We want superior weapons to feel safe. And I think that even in this last week, we've experienced those desires, haven't we, as a nation? In many ways. But the reality is that what we have in God's faithful care over us, that is more valuable than any worldly comfort we could attain. It is interesting to note that all throughout the story of the Bible, Israel is never the superpower. And very rare does a superpower come and actually save Israel, other than Father God himself. The superpowers and the supernations in the scriptures are actually oppressors who continue to face judgment. And at times, God even uses other massive, large nations, superpowers, to come in and knock off another superpower um, so that they can then, in turn, uh, make Israel their slaves. They pay the price, right? It's just over and over and over again. The moral of the story is that what God does, the way that He manifests Himself to the world is through this very small, very insignificant nation. Now, and, and then the picture there is not of the superiority of Israel itself, it's the picture of the superiority of Israel's God. Faithful God. I received a phone call uh, this last week as I was writing this portion of this message and it reminded me of this truth that God is faithful. Um, and the phone call reminded me of a story that I would call a past win in my life. Uh, one of our daughters, uh, Grace, uh, was just a few months old uh, when she was diagnosed with RSV. Uh, she was diagnosed with pneumonia and influenza, all three at the same time. RSV, pneumonia, influenza. Um, and honestly, to be honest with you, we nearly lost her. She almost died. Um, it came, uh, this episode came right on the heels of a very problematic birth for her, too, where she almost died in the midst of labor and delivery. So we just felt like the entire world was coming down on us, and we weren't sure why. We were very young believers at the time, too. I remember sitting at home um, as uh, Christy had taken Grace to the hospital, and uh, I remember sitting at home after receiving the phone call from her, letting me know the diagnosis. And I remember the words that Christy said, if we had waited much longer to take her to the hospital, she would have died in our home. So this was just a very traumatic experience for us. And I remember sitting on the edge of my bed, and my heart and my mind were just racing uh, with fear, racing with uh, um, worry and doubt. Uh, it was just an unimaginable experience um, for me. And I remember I'm on my cell phone and my, I was talking to my dad and my dad was praying for us. And I'll never forget this sense of helplessness that I felt. That sense of helplessness as he prayed for us, it turned into this calm and, and settled a sense of peace. It was a sense of comfort knowing 
that while I did not have the worldly resources to heal our daughter, I serve a God who is more than capable, He's more than faithful to either heal her right now, this side of heaven, or if He so chose to do so, He could bring her into heaven absolutely healed and completely put together and free from the pain of this life. In that moment, what I learned the most was to trust in the faithfulness of my heavenly Father who loves my children more than I do. And I can't tell you how much that one truth about my faithful Father in heaven has carried me through years of ups and downs as a father to children. It's one that I've leaned into a ton lately. My heavenly Father loves my kids more than I do. I look back at that episode. Um, I can celebrate it as a win. And I would have celebrated it as, as a win regardless of the outcome. Uh, excruciatingly painful as it could have been. I would have celebrated it as a win because I trust and I know that God is absolutely faithful not only in this life, but in the next. Not only in the rearview mirror on this bridge, but also in the forward mirror on that bridge. God is faithful, not just now in the midst of your immediate circumstances. And not just in the past, in your past experiences and wins. But he's also faithful in whatever the future may hold for you. And there's no better place to grab hold of that reality than at the foot of the cross of Christ and make a beeline for the cross again. So you and I are no different than the nation of Israel, aren't we? In comparison with our enemies, you think about our enemies. Satan, sin, the grave, the world, those are our Enemies, those enemies that we have, they are superpowers. They are heavily armed. They are more numerous than you can imagine. They are far more superior in their ability to win the war against you than you could ever imagine. You and I are literally helpless to defend ourselves against those enemies, much less defeat them. But the truth and the good news of the gospel of this passage is that Christ's work at the cross defeats those enemies. Our enemies, Satan, sin, the grave, the world, those superpowers that we are helpless to defeat, they faced a superpower on the cross of Calvary that they could not beat. That's a picture of God's faithfulness. So, when you celebrate past wins, it helps you to rest the faithfulness of God. Finally, number three, celebrating past wins helps you to look forward with hope. Helps you to look forward with hope. Now, a little bit of mind-bending here for you. Hope you can track with me. As I said earlier, the first six verses of Joshua 12, they're, they're just a summary of Moses and his east side team their two wins over their enemies 
Deuteronomy 2 and 3. Those two wins, Moses and the east side team experienced. They experienced that before the people of Israel, under Joshua's leadership, crossed over the Jordan River and then began their conquest of the promised land on the west side. Okay, you got that in your mind. That first episode under Moses' leadership, why is that significant for us? I mean, is it just simply that, well, Moses beat two kings and Joshua beat 29? Man, I like Joshua's leadership. I'm going to roll with him, right? We'll play on that. That's a winning team. It's not that. Um, It is significant for us, though, because those first two wins under Moses are a stage setter. Okay? Think about it. They're a stage setter. Uh, At that point, if you go back in the nation of Israel's history, at that point in Israel's history, in Deuteronomy 2 through 3, what has happened previous to that is that Israel has just spent 40 years wandering around in the wilderness because of her sin and her rebellion. That's what's been happening before Deuteronomy 2 and 3. And then what happens in Deuteronomy 2 and 3, God drops two winds in Israel's lap at the tail end of a losing season. And what it does is it sets the stage for the next season under Joshua's leadership. Sets the stage. Two wins at the end of a losing season. Might not seem very significant to us. Half the time we have a tendency to look back and go, but it was a losing season, right? And we know what this is like if you follow the Huskers at all. Husker football, the losing season. There is significance here because it sets the stage. You look back at those two wins of Moses and you know That those two wins at the end of a losing season, what does it have the possibility to do? Those two wins can give you hope for the next season. Especially if the next season has a schedule that seems to be impossible. So put yourself on this bridge. Look back at those two wins. Put yourself in Israel's shoes. Looking ahead to the to the battles that are going to come after they cross that river, after wandering around for 40 years being lost. I hope that you catch the significance of this. Those two wins sets the stage so that Israel, God's people, can trust that God is going to bring them through this very dark and exciting future on the other side of the Jordan. It sets the stage for that. Scriptures teach us that a lack of hope makes the heart sick. But faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not yet seen. See, all that Israel had been holding on to before entering the promised land was simply a losing record while wandering around in the wilderness of sin's consequences for years. That's all they had. Forty years of loss. And then in the next breath, God drops two back-to-back winds in Israel's lap right before they cross the Jordan River in flood season. It's like God in His kindness 
was simply dropping a few small winds in front of Israel to help them move into the darkness of the unknown next season beyond the Jordan where the promised land. Remember, it's a land full of milk and honey, but it's also a land that is full of giants. That next season under Joshua, it would require a deep sense of hope, a deep sense of faith in a faithful God who would annihilate the giants in the land. So, celebrating past wins not only helps you identify the faith rhythms, and it not only helps you to rest in God's faithfulness, but it also helps you to look forward with hope. So in conclusion, I want to ask you, where are you at today in regards to hope? Where are you at today in regards to hope? As you stand on this Joshua 12 bridge, as you look back at the last year, or you look back at the last few years of your life, what kind of hope do you have? I have to be honest and I have to confess and admit that I struggle with hope. Sometimes I, I look back at the most recent events of my life and I feel a bit hopeless. Sometimes my heart feels a bit sick. My faith feels a bit shaken at times. But then in those moments, if I press it a little bit further, if I look a little bit further back to a different win, a win that reawakens my faith, I look back to a win that strengthens my heart. I look back to a win that gives me resolve to stand. I look back to a win that helps me to walk. I look back to a win that helps me to remember what it means to stay seated in my identity in who I actually am. And when I look back to that win, I'm not talking about some pithy little win like I got a better job or I got a wife or I got a brand new truck. I'm not talking about some of those earthly wins that you can get that aren't necessarily bad, but they're pithy. They don't, they don't last. I'm talking about an eternal win where my Savior and my Redeemer hung on a cross and He died and then He ran out of the grave and He left me with a promise to bring me into His perfect presence in heaven once I cross that eternal bridge at the end of this season. That's the win that I look back to. You know what happens when I look back to that win? Something happens inside of me. When I reflect on the truth of the gospel, you know what happens? Hope happens. Rest happens. Faith happens. Now that is the, the exact reverse order of the points that I preach today. When I, when I look back and when I survey the finished work of Jesus at the cross, when I see His victory at the empty tomb, when I think about His promise of eternity in heaven, hope gets reignited inside of me and despair flees. My heart finds rest in God's faithfulness and I quit striving to be better than I really am. I quit working and I just rest. My faith gets bolstered. It gets built up. It gets reignited. I walk in victory knowing that my Father is 
faithful. And that's all that matters. See, the book of Hebrews underscores all of this. When the book of Hebrews says that in Christ we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our soul, a hope that enters into the inner place, the inner place of relationship with our Father, our Papa in heaven, where we find true Sabbath rest. This is the true Sabbath rest of the book of Joshua. When you look back at the winds in your life, and you look back at those winds and you filter them through the work of Jesus at the cross and the empty tomb in light of the promise of heaven, what is going to happen when you're doing that? Your hope is going to get reignited. Your heart is going to rest in the faithfulness of God. And the rhythms of your faith are going to be strengthened. If that's not happening, can I submit to you that you are not celebrating the win of the cross of Christ? And can I then, after rebuking you in that, encourage you, take yourself to the foot of the cross on the hill of Calvary and kneel down there in front of your Savior who gave his life for you in a most horrific way. And you'll find hope. And you'll find rest. And you'll find faith. Amen? Pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for the message of the cross. And I pray, Father, today that you would use that message to restore hope, strengthen faith, and to help us rest. Trust that you'll do that work. In Jesus' name, everybody said, Amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.